Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. George Rusnak joins us right now. George, it's real simple. I looked at the, the UK two-year yield today. And I couldn't go logarithmic because it's a negative yield. But the math is real simple. It is a persistent trend. How grinding is this bond market? And does it, does it indicate for you that the U.S. 10-year yield could grind ever lower? It could grind lower here. We've been in a range here for quite a while, Tom. So since June 5th, where we hit roughly 89 basis points, we've been in sort of this 60 to 75 basis point range for the last month or so. We think it's going to probably stay in that range. Unfortunately, though, over the longer term, we do think it might trend a little bit higher. And a little bit higher is only 10, 20 basis points. But quite frankly, Tom, a 10 basis point move higher in 10-year rates is a negative 1.2% return for investors here. So that's the challenge that investors are facing right now, is that they're just really with yields so low, they actually just a small backup can cause a pretty significant negative yield and negative return for clients. George, it's been fascinating to see what happens at the front end. But of course, the front end is hypersensitive to expectations about the policy rate. What's been more interesting for me is what's happening down the longer end. Bob Michael of JP Morgan thinks that here in the United States, we can converge down towards the policy rate on a 10-year maturity in the Treasury market. And to be clear, we're not far off those levels. Do you think that can happen, George? It's feasible, John. Uh, we don't think necessarily that's going to happen. That's not our base case scenario. It's feasible, though. And certainly what's happening here domestically is we're catching up to international, what we're seeing overseas in Europe and Japan. And that's that's actually not a good thing for us. So we actually like the fact that the yield curve is actually widened a little bit and more specifically has steepened a little bit. That's something that's a healthy thing for the economy. That is part of our base case forecast that continues and again, though, I think the key here is that it's going to be gradual. And I think the other key of why that's potentially going to happen, John, is the idea of the issuance that's coming out. That was well absorbed last week, last last week's issuance. But going forward, it remains to be seen if that's going to happen. And the Fed's actually going to have to step in here from a quantitative easing perspective to pick up on that to stave off any kind of rate tantrum that you could get if you don't see if you don't see them step in. George, typically when benchmark government yields are this low, that is negative for the economy. Certainly we see a lot of uh, dark clouds out there for the economic recovery and yet a lot of people going further into risk with a preference even increasingly for high yield over investment grade. Why is this a good time to take credit risk at a time of so much skepticism about the recovery being expressed in government debt markets? It's a great question, Lisa, and we're actually in that camp as well, believe it or not. We've been stepping into high yield a little bit. We're neutral on it overall right now. We're looking for opportunities to take on credit risk, and the reason why is right now you're actually getting compensated to take that risk. So in the past, you've had such tight spreads, there were no opportunities to do that. Even if the fall rates pick up just a little bit here, you're getting compensated. Six and a half percent type yields and high yield, you're looking at a 580 type of spread. Historically, that's a good opportunity to get into that even if it seems like a challenging time to get into it, we think over the long haul, those returns will offset any kind of volatility that you're going to see, any kind of defaults that you're going to see. We think it's a good opportunity. Investment-grade corporates, high-yield corporates, preferreds, step into that risk. We think from an income perspective, there's just such a dearth of income out there that you're going to see a lot of demand coming into that, and that's going to support those levels. 
despite some of the challenges that they might see financially. The spread you're saying sufficient to absorb the bankruptcies and the losses that are expected. Right now we're seeing the highest default rate among U.S. high yield debt in 10 years with it expected to go even higher. What kind of default rate is your analysis pricing in to make the 5.8 percentage point uh, yield cushion worth it? Right now, default rates are roughly between 5 and 8%. Even if you go up to that 8% level, we still think it makes sense to stay within high yield right now. You have to leg in. You have to be in there over the long term, and you're getting compensated. Look, if you look at where else you go in the market, and this is a challenge that every client is facing right now. Pre-COVID, for fixed income, you could count on getting two things. You could count on getting good income and an offset to your risk portfolio. Going forward, you're going to have to choose one or the other. You're going to have to choose either the income component, but you're not going to get the risk offset, or you're going to have to choose the risk offset, which is treasuries, agencies, asset-backed mortgages, but you're not going to get the income. We actually think going for the income right here is making sense. And we think that actually more and more investors are going to be doing that and will support the high-yield market. George, the backdrop here is a new statistic, and Greg Vallier published it today, but many others have talked about it as well. It's all a lot of bond analysis against what appears to be $4 trillion of national debt. That's the new statistic, not $2 trillion, not $3 trillion, $444 trillion. What do you say to Wells Fargo clients who say, wait a minute, there's $4 trillion out there. That's a number we've never perceived. It's scary, Tom. The amount of debt that we're taking on is very significant. The amount of stimulus that you're seeing in the marketplace is something that we haven't really seen before. The 2008 crisis, you saw roughly $340 trillion in, in fiscal stimulus over a uh, two-year time frame. You're going to see $2 trillion over a 180-day period in this, so six times as much in stimulus. And you're right, that's a huge debt burden, and that's going to cause challenges for us for time to come. But the reality is we need it. We need it right now when you stop the economy, when you slow it down as significantly as you do, and you have the pandemic, you, this is the time to be adding the fiscal stimulus. So we're doing the right thing, both on the fiscal side and the monetary side. It's scary over the long term, but for the short term, we really need that to jumpstart the economy. And over the long term, we're going to have to work for ways to pay that down. Well, over a long term, I mean, can we do this with stability? I mean, not only stability in the bond world, your world, but also Scott Wren's world, the equity world as well. Do you see this as a stable process or are we going to have some um, <clears throat> volatility out there? Yeah, we do think more of the volatility. Again, uh, resilience is one of the key themes resilience. that we've talked about. Yeah, that's what we've talked about over both um, over our mid-year and the idea that you know, yes, there's a path back, but that path might be quite a bumpy one. And so you're going to see that within the stock market. Obviously, though, we do still see sort of a neutral positioning. We're slightly favored towards equities. We do think there's some good growth out there. Yeah. And we're roughly forecasting about a 3% growth between now and year end. George, I've got to wrap up this conversation with a question that basically addressed the only thing that I think people like Lisa Abramovitz, Michael McKee, and Molly Smith would be following, which is waste management. 2024 debt bought by the Federal Reserve, $3 million worth at about 105 cents on the dollar. It's just been redeemed at 101 cents. That's a loss for the Federal Reserve. Do central bank losses matter? I think right now in the short term, they need to support stability. They need to support liquidity within the marketplace. And they're going to have some losses, unfortunately. Over the long term, I think they'll be in good shape. But I think you're right over the short term, there's going to be some bumpiness there, John. And they're going to have to absorb that in order to get back to 
a more liquid, well, well-operating market. And quite frankly, John, they've done a good job over the short term. Yeah. And we think over the long term, things will pan out fine. George Rusnak of Wells Fargo Private Bank. George, always great to catch up with you. David Bianco's going, this family's dysfunctional. Mr. Bianco's with DWS Americas, and he joins us now with Investment Perspective. David Bianco, Benjamin Bernanke's core theory was the financial system in any crisis must stay sound. Is the American financial system sound today? Yes, Tom, good morning. It it is sound. Um, There are challenges, but it's sound. And last recession, the banks were very much the patient This time they are a medic. They are responding to the crisis. They're helping facilitate many federal programs. They are still providing credit. Uh, Their earnings are under a lot of pressure. And although they're not the epicenter uh, of this recession in terms of being part of the the, the cause, uh, they are still uh, suffering quite a bit of the brunt. And the loan loss provisions, which we saw in the first quarter and quarter, there'll be more to come. That is hitting the, the earnings, as you see this morning. The big banks uh, are getting through it, in part because of fees from other capital markets-oriented businesses that they have. But it's not easy for these big banks. They are making their contribution to, uh, to absorbing the costs of this pandemic uh, that society is suffering. But it's good to be a big bank. And I think as the earnings season goes on, you'll see if the challenges uh, to smaller banks that are more dependent on that typical that interest income margin, that's even tougher and it's going to stay tough in this zero interest rate environment as far as the eye can see. The implication in your comments perhaps is consolidation, if not in actual purchases of smaller banks in market share. And is this this mean from your perspective, you want to buy the JP Morgans of the world? You want to buy the strongest U.S. banks right now, given their beaten up valuations and given the scope for their consolidation of market share going forward? Within the banks, biggest is best. Um, a lot of people are, are moving the debate to uh, should they own big banks versus um, super cap tech. I, I think the portfolio should have at least equal weights, probably in both at this stage, to bring a little bit more balance between this growth versus value dynamic that's been so extreme. Consolidation amongst the banks, the regulators would have to uh, approve it, endorse it. Hopefully, we don't have uh, too much of that activity going on. Uh, involuntarily, uh, because there will be some small banks that will have a very tough time uh, should this uh, challenging economy spill into 2021. And that's a real possibility. And the regulators are certainly asking the banks to consider that outlook. David Bianco, one of the hallmarks of your research for years is a bigger, broader perspective. You've got to overlay onto all of this talk of America and call it developed world markets, China. Where do we stand now with this tension to China, and how will that impinge on markets? At DWS, we've been pretty bullish on China for quite some time. We recognize the uh, country has its challenges, return on capital, um, many other types of uh, uh, progress that it's making as becoming not just a developed country, but a leader in the world economy. Um, There's this tension between the United States and China, which is an understatement, which begs the question, should U.S. investors be investing in in China? We monitor this, but our answer is yes. Our answer is whether it be investing in a currency that looks like it's going to be one of the world's more important currencies uh, over the long term, in in companies uh, and and an economy that we think is an important part of the global economy. For the longest time, we would simply argue, just go buy China tech, uh, tech stocks, this rise of Eastern tech, 
uh, not just the Western tech companies, uh, these Eastern tech companies, yeah. you know who they are, they're behemoths, they've performed just as well as our behemoth tech names. But at a time like this, where the, the China economy is bouncing better since the virus and showing signs of, of its ability to grow, maybe at a slower pace, but grow, if you're looking for value stocks you know, beyond technology, we would point you in the direction of China. Uh, maybe first their consumer and their healthcare stocks, Dare I say that even their financials, uh, their, their banks, uh, I wouldn't make it a big part of the portfolio, but I think the currency and the interest rate environment in Asia being better than in the Western world, Chinese stocks belong in the portfolio. David, I think what people struggle with is every single morning we could write the same headline, tensions rising between the United States and China. It's almost become a joke. Except it isn't. You see the news right. out of the UK this morning, essentially kicking out Huawei over the next several years towards the back end of the decade. You see what's happening in the South China Sea. Once again, that's become an issue, a much bigger issue in the last 24 hours. David, no one knows what to do with that story anymore. What do you do with it? Well, a lot of these uh, big macro pictures, we try to think about how to invest through them, around them, try to uh, keep perspective on what really matters to, to the stocks. Are you comfortable with the currency? Are you comfortable with the business? Are you comfortable with the valuation? Uh, and, and in those you know, simple questions, we are. And that's why uh, China stocks are in the portfolio. And I, I think as time goes on, as people think about maybe MSCI EFA being a, a crucial part of, the, of, a, of an equity portfolio, I think Asia X Japan is going to become an equally uh, important and strategic weight in, in, in U.S. investors' equity portfolios. But but look, as you said, John, unfortunately, it's not a joke. It is real. There's a lot of tension between uh, the U.S. And, and China about the way the world should be uh, run and, and, and elements of, um, uh, of individualism and, and, and the country surrounding China. And, and look, this is, this is something that won't go away post the U.S. election. This yeah. is not a political issue. I think the United States, both sides of the aisle, see the tension with China and, and have different ideas about how to deal with it. But uh, this tension between the U.S. and China is real. It's not going away. As long as it doesn't uh, explode, I do think it's investable for, for U.S. investors. David Bianco of DWS Investments. Earnings season in full swing, and it's amazing how Gerard Cassidy, RBC Capital Markets, really like Mr. Mayo, uh, saying this is as bad as it gets. And uh, he was quite forceful about better times to come, particularly looking out past two and three quarters. Someone to discuss this and provide broad market perspective is Gina Martin-Adams. She is Bloomberg Intelligence chief equity strategist, but what she's really in charge of is courage. More than anyone I know, she's never gone to cash. She's always participating in the market market, and that has been a good and good, uh, better than good outcome for her. Gina Martin-Adams, if you have confidence to be in the markets right now, can you have confidence to be in the financial sector and the two big-to-fail banks specifically? Yeah, I think it largely depends upon your outlook for revenue growth. I mean, frankly, these are extremely discounted stocks at large. The financial sector, when you look at the history, has been trading at an incredible discount for most of this year, even though they bounced back significantly from March to early June, this is a group that's still trading between one and a half and two standard deviations below five-year average. So you've got a discount available to you. It's really just a question of where do you think things are going to head? Because in order for this group to outperform, it's got to get better revenue growth. That's been the sticking yep. point throughout this cycle. Everybody focuses on the yield curve, 
But the reality is when you look at the factors driving financials, right. it's that lack of revenue growth that's been incredibly important. So you've got to get some economic visibility, I think, to feel a little better about your investment opportunity in this space. And I went right to the revenue growth headlines, folks, that you see coming across the Bloomberg. And it's real simple, Gina. That has to get fixed. And the way it gets fixed is cost cutting. Forget about aggregate demand. Forget about yield curve. Dynamics is one of their ways here, one of the factors to a better outcome. All these banks are going to start cutting costs. Yeah, they have. They really have no choice because revenue Thank has you. been somewhat paltry. I mean, they've got you've got J.P. Morgan and Citi out this morning talking about trading revenues extraordinarily strong. That certainly has been an offset to what's happening with the consumer books and the loans in general. But that is a that big portion of sort of their core lending operations is a mass as a massive drag. The result of slow growth there is going to be that they have to cut costs to maintain some degree of margin stability because that's what's going to drive earnings growth in the shorter term. Um, you know, the other thing that they've got to contend with is the yield curve. When we look at the history of the yield curve, it does have some predictive power for obviously net interest margin and, and margin at large for the financial space. The yield curve steepening out of the market's low this year has been about half as much as you usually get following recession lows in stocks. So it's been a really, really slow climb for the yield curve, and that's going to restrain growth in this space as well. So absolutely, they're going to have to cut costs to right-size operations with a slower growth environment and also contend with what's happening in the macro. Do you know it's important that you say that they need to have some visibility into the economy to gain conviction about bank stocks? Just to give you a sense, one of the supports to profitability has been investment banking revenues. And we have J.P. Morgan CFO coming out and saying that they do not expect investment banking fees to be as high in the next quarter, uh, given the fact that we are expecting a decline in debt issuance. Gina, just broadening out to the rest of the market, there was a story today, uh, Bank of America managers, uh, fund manager survey came out for the month of July showing that people believe, 74% of all respondents believe that tech is the most crowded trade. It is a record for the survey. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Tech is absolutely the most crowded trade. There's no doubt about it. It's been between tech, some of the select consumer discretionary num uh, names such as Amazon, as well as communication services, and then healthcare. Those are kind of the only spaces that investors have been really willing to put longer-term capital to work. Uh, over the course of the last several months. They're just sort of hiding in what is more defensive stocks at this point in time, and defense is a very different tone and characteristic than it was, say, a year ago. It's not utilities and real estate and consumer staples so much as the technology, healthcare, communication services groups that actually do have relatively stable growth prospects. And even more, more so, stable growth prospects not only in 2020, but growth possibilities into 2021. That combination has been sort of the, the ideal space for people who are willing to take a chance in equities to put capital to work. Now, is that going to be the winner longer term? If we do see economic recovery, what you should see is some catch-up in these lower valuation stocks, high cyclical groups higher risk, higher beta groups that no one really wants to own, like the financials and the industrials, the rest of consumer discretionary, maybe even some energy and material stocks, yeah. which, you know, frankly, that's just been so volatile, but it is high value. I mean, it's, there are extraordinary discounts available in this space if you can find that economic visibility. Catch-up is not the same thing as tech selling off. Do you see tech as being overvalued and poised for a fall or just poised for an underperformance relative to other parts? parts of the market. 
Yeah, most of the time uh, what you see in economic recovery is still participation. You get participation from all groups, but you see the cyclical stocks lead the recovery. You see the the catch-up story. So we shouldn't see an outright decline in tech valuations. That said, there has been so much crowding in select names and select portions of tech. Think software and some of the services groups, even some of the communication stocks, where investors have hit and a tremendous amount of capital, you may see a modest rotation out of those groups in order to put that capital to work in other cyclicals. But in general, it should be a catch-up, not necessarily a massive sell-off, even though valuations do look somewhat extended. And that is, that's a big if. I mean, I say if very carefully because I don't have a ton of conviction that we're going to have this rip-roaring economy developing into the second half of this year and into 2021. So even in our yeah. sector scorecard, we're still hiding in those defensive groups. We've got technology and communication services and healthcare right up at the top as well. I'm not sure how many people actually have high levels of conviction about anything right now. Gina, fantastic to catch up with you as always. Gina Martin-Adams there of Bloomberg Intelligence, the chief equity strategist. Right now on the charts, he is just exquisite at the trends of the market. Christopher Verone joins from Strategic. Chris, an open question to begin. What is the trend of the equity market right now? I think the tactical trend is sideways. I mean, we're digesting what was a 40% rally off the lows. We don't have much seasonal support over the next 60 to 90 days. So I think the next month or two is going to look a lot like the last month or two, where markets just don't make a lot of progress. Chris, when do you think that the virus counts are going to matter again? So, you know, it's an important question, and it's certainly um, the topic of almost every client conversation we have. But I would encourage people to think about it a, a little bit differently. I think this is less about um, what the trajectory of the virus is. I think this is about the financial markets interpretation of that. And what I've actually been encouraged by over the last several weeks, as the news around the virus has gotten uh, has gotten more dire, you have not seen credit conditions really deteriorate to any meaningful extent. And that's just a big difference from late February, early March, where the credit backdrop really began to deteriorate in a very, very quick fashion. That has not happened here. So I think credit markets are actually more important than what the daily virus count is. Chris, uh, we're just looking right now, Jamie Dimon speaking on the call after J.P. Morgan reported earnings, and he was asked about the health of the consumer, and he said this is not a normal recession. Consumers' incomes are up, savings are up, home prices are up. The traditional recessionary part has been delayed, and it will come down the past. We will see the weakness down the road. How well is that being priced into markets currently, given the fact that we do have some of the delayed pain that will come along with this recession? Yeah, you know, I'm always hesitant to forecast. I don't think anyone out there is a great forecaster. Uh, certainly will defer to Mr. Diamond on his expertise. I do think when you look at what the market already discounted, you had a 40% drawdown in stocks. Uh, and remember, most stocks didn't peak in February of 2020. Small caps peaked two years ago. Cyclicality broadly peaked in the fourth quarter of 2017. So I'm trying to ask ourselves the question, um, has cyclicality, have small caps, have the secondary issues after a two-year bear market, are they starting to come out of that? And I think the resiliency to really bad news over the last four, five, or six weeks, you got to give markets a hat tip. Because, you know, we're talking about discounting mechanisms. 
the market surely is aware of what the future will hold. We just got to figure out what it's focused on. Well, Chris, let's get into the technicals. Over the last month, it's pretty clear that breadth has narrowed. The post-COVID highs is something we can't breach and hold. We saw that take place yesterday. How key is that for you? You know, it reminds me a lot of, and I remember it distinctly, it reminds me a lot of like May through July, August of 2009. You had this 45% move off the March 2009 lows. And then you went through three months of all the leading issues starting to correct, breath deteriorated. It was a very, very tense three or four months as the market consolidated that gain and it was resolved higher. So I just think it's interesting that the expectation is, I think, among a lot of investors that this consolidation we've been in over the last month must resolve lower. I'm not convinced of that. And right now, folks, Bloomberg Surveillance and Nerd Alert, we're going to do this with Christopher Verone because he can do it. Christopher Verone, I was stunned yesterday to look at the Tesla chart, and there are five gaps, folks, jumps within the Tesla stock price, five since the beginning of June. I believe I can say, Christopher Verone, I've never seen that. This goes back to John Maggie and his classic text of 1948. For our global Wall Street audience who've all made a ton of money on Tesla, what does it signal that Tesla has surged through five technical gaps just since early June? I I think when you look at Tesla or the chart in particular, this has really been the hood ornament of liquidity. It's been the hood ornament of the growth trade. Is there an excess to correct here? Likely. We had what looked like blow-off volume yesterday. You did almost 40 million shares uh, on Tesla, similar to what you did near the high in early February. But the trend here is up. So I would approach this from the perspective of what do you do with weakness? And when trends are positive, you're inclined to buy weakness. I think you start filling some of these gaps near uh, 1150, 1200, 1250. I'd be more inclined to be a buyer of that weakness given the trend. Bring that over to the major growth stocks that have driven this market. Is it the same thing? uh, Buy the weakness when they fill the gap, get long? Yeah, and I think that's a process that's going to play out over the next several months. I think the more difficult question is, as some of the high flyers correct, do some of the secondary issues step up and fill that void? For example, the banks, right? As earnings get underway this week in that group, is that going to be enough to support the tape while some of the high-flying momentum stocks actually come in here. I think that's the question that's going to be answered over the next several days here. Chris, a little bit of risk aversion coming in ahead of the cash open. We've got equity futures declining now, down by a tenth of 1%. Mild moves, but worth pointing out in the bond market. Yields were higher by a basis point, now lower by about a basis point on a 10-year maturity to 0.61%. Before we let you go, Chris, the outperformance that we've seen in EM over the last mm. month, how constructive mm. are you on that continuing? So... I want to answer that a little bit differently. I want to answer it through the lens of the U.S. dollar. And I'll, I'll say this. I'm very, very bearish on U.S. dollars here. I, I think we're putting in a major, major top in USD. And I think as a consequence of that, we should expect to see some new developments in the macro landscape. One of those, John, being the resurgence of emerging markets as a leadership idea. And not just EM, but rest of world quietly starting to outperform. Okay, Chris, this is critical. I've got to jump in. Kit Jukes of Sokjian asked this question this morning. If stocks stop Mm. going up, can the dollar really decline? Now, if you think stocks are going sideways for the next several months, is that an environment where the dollar gets weaker? Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think weaker dollar 
is a headwind to some of the big index weights that have driven this market over the last four or five, six weeks, while it may be a tailwind to the basic resources, to the industrials, to even the banks that have largely been on the sidelines. So I think what we're on the cusp of here is some leadership change, and I think the dollar is driving that. This is the most important chart in the world. U.S. dollar is topping. I know that's a bold call. It's what we see in our work. It's just bouncing as you say those words, Chris. I appreciate <laughs> that this is a long-term call, not a five-minute time horizon. Chris, great to catch up with you, as always, mate. Chris Verone, Head of Tanical and Macro Strategy and Strategus Securities. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.